Good morning, everyone. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> How's everyone doing this morning? Excellent. Good. Mm. Well, we have um, not at all too much content to cover this morning. Not at all. Um, we are going to be looking at the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations, and uh, uh, our, 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 our time is further compounded by the fact that while Lamentations is relatively straightforward, Jeremiah, I'm going to go on record, is the most confusing and difficult book in the Old Testament, hands down. It's got, it's, got some, yeah, it's got some contenders, but I think it's probably the most difficult book in the Old Testament to go through. So we're going to try to make sense of this, um, including acknowledging where it's difficult to make sense of it as we go. Uh, fortunately, the book can be summarized somewhat succinctly. Uh, it is the story of God calling up the prophet Jeremiah to prosecute the last remnant of his people in the land, namely the king of Judah. It's the story of Judah's stubborn refusal to heed God's one last chance for repentance and the story of Judah being wiped off the face of the map and carried into captivity by Babylon. And the book of Lamentations is essentially the reaction to that. It is a a series of poems in which those who have been carried away into captivity react to what has happened in horror, in sadness, in repentance, and in hope. And that is our subject matter this morning. As I said, I've got too much content in my notes. I've got more in my head that I want to say. So we're going to pray and we're going to jump into it. Father, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. We ask that as we go through this sobering subject matter, that we would just see ourselves, Lord, in the text here, that we would not stand in judgment of Judah, but that we would let the word of God stand in judgment of us. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, 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 walk away with a better and a right understanding of these books for the glory of everything that you are doing in this world for the glory of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, there are, or were, it looks like they're all out, uh, handouts in the back. If someone needs one, you can have mine. Um, But uh, if you have one, I encourage you to uh, take notes as we go. We're going to kind of rush through some of these preliminary matters um, as we... uh, as we begin, and I'm going to try my best to lump Lamentations and Jeremiah together for the sake of time, but as you kind of heard from the outset, there's a lot of overlap in subject matter anyways. Uh, But in terms of basics, authorship, uh, Jeremiah, it's pretty clear from the very first words of that book that these are the prophecies of Jeremiah. Um, Now, he had a amanuensis or a scribe, think of him like a secretary by the name of Baruch, uh, who actually did a lot of the recording of what Jeremiah wrote. And so these are Jeremiah's words uh, that came from God that are expressed most likely by Baruch. um, And Baruch may have had a, a significant hand in compiling the book. For Lamentations, we don't know who wrote Lamentations. Tradition does attribute it to Jeremiah, um, in part because of some references in Second Chronicles to Jeremiah lamenting. He's a guy who likes to lament stuff. Um, but uh, there's also, in the book itself, he, he definitely does have that tendency. Um, but Lamentations is an exemplar of a type of poetry that sprung up in exilic Judah, um, which I'll explain what that means in a second. Um, And so it's possible this was written much later than uh, Jeremiah's day. Also, there's a ton of prophets who are active in this time period. I mean, a lot of them. So there could be any number of folks who who wrote the book. Um, But tradition does attribute it to Jeremiah. Um, There's nothing explicit in Lamentations that would say one way or the other. Um, I I tend to like that idea, but not a hill any of us should really want to die on. In terms of dating, so Jeremiah is called as a prophet in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. I'll cover that too, I promise. Um, So about 626 is when he starts his prophetic ministry, and it goes all the way to at least the 580s um, and the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in about 586. So that's Jeremiah's dating. Uh, The book could not be finished any earlier than 586. And then for Lamentations, uh, because the destruction of Jerusalem happened in 586, that book would have to be written also no earlier than that. So uh, we're looking at stuff that was written in the, the 500s BC. Any, any questions on that so far? Make sense? Yay? 
Okay. Um, it, it, if you do kind of flip through your handout here, you'll notice on page two there's a giant blank section on the number three for historical context. Um, I'm going to spend some time this morning kind of going through what's happening in the world, what's happening you know, uh, politically, uh, uh, chronologically in the life of, of Judah at the time, um, why I'm saying Judah and not Israel and those sorts of things. So bear with me. We'll get there in a second, and then hopefully this will make a little more sense. But this next section, section uh, 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 C, 1C in your handout there, this is, this is my attempt to explain a little bit of why Jeremiah is so difficult to, to go through. Um, and Tim, last week, he covered those first two, poetry and prophecy. These are not unique to Jeremiah. Uh, there are difficulties in reading many of the prophetic books uh, that are just kind of institutional in the books themselves. Um, Tim did an extended treatment on those genres. And so if you were not here last week or you don't remember those, I would encourage you to go back and sort of re-listen to that. We don't have time to sort of rehash the whole thing. Um, but there are a couple things I do want to point out um, and some cautions as we read this book and other books of the Old Testament. And, and that first one really does have to do with poetry. Um, poetry, by definition, is a genre that is controlled by form. And a simple example of that is in Western poetry, we tend to like meter and rhyme. Those are the things that make up Western poetry at its core. So if I have a, a line and I end that line with the word same, and my next line has to rhyme with the word same, I have greatly reduced the amount of words that I could use in that second line, haven't I? The form has now controlled the content to a certain extent. Same thing is true in Hebrew poetry. They don't use meter or rhyme. It's really more for uh, a parallelism. So it's a statement and restatement concept. But that, that does control the, con the, the, the content to a certain extent. I, I think also, too, if we're honest with ourselves, in fact, let's do this. Think of the last five books that you have read that are not the Bible. Last five books, get them in your head. How many of those were books of poetry? Who wants to raise their hand and says at least one of those was a book of poetry? I'm shocked. No one? Oh, Willie. Okay, there we go. <laughs> the last time I read a book of poetry was during a very pretentious phase of my undergrad. Um, you know, it's 20 something years ago. So it's not something we read a whole lot. It's not a genre that we are super experienced with apart from the Bible itself. And so kind of understanding that when we get to poetry, recognize it is a different genre. Slow down. Um, um, I remember multiple times uh, when I was a younger believer, I didn't understand the whole statement restatement thing. I just blundered my way into the Psalms, into the Old Testament, and I made some some pretty significant uh, uh, misinterpretations of text. Nothing like heretical, but I just I just didn't get it because I I couldn't quite tell if it was talking about the same thing or two different things, and that makes a big deal. So my point is, is that because poetry is something that's generally a little foreign to us, and Hebrew poetry in general is very different than Western poetry, when you see that format shift in your Bibles, recognize what it is, slow down, read it carefully, and recognize there's going to be a lot of statement, restatement, a lot of things that seem kind of duplicative that are meant to be uh, taken in logical pairs. Um, so poetry is a little foreign to us. That's one of the reasons why many of these prophetic books are difficult. Prophecy is another. Um, and again, Tim did a great job kind of going through prophecy in general. Uh, he talked about one of the hallmarks of um, Old Testament and to a certain extent New Testament prophecy as well, which is uh, prophetic foreshortening. I'm not sure we use that word, but it's the idea that you might have, when God tells, about, tells us something that's going to happen in the future, and he gives us you know, two or three events, he kind of smushes those events together in a single thought or breath, even though there might be a thousand years or multiple thousands of years between those events. Uh, it's kind of like me saying, tomorrow I'm going to go to uh, Tesla headquarters, I'm going to walk in that building, and I'm going to be the CEO. You would be forgiven if you thought that I, I was saying that I had an interview tomorrow for the, the CEO position of Tesla. But what I really mean is I'm going to walk in that building, get some job, I'm going to work my way up to it, and at the end of the day, I'm going to be the CEO there. Um, in the same way, God tends to sort of take things that have decent bits of time and smushes them together in a single breath or a single sentence. Um, and, and that can be really frustrating as we read about Old Testament prophecy. Um, but I think it also hints at something that we need to also take away as we read these things, which is, number one, 
God is not there to satisfy our curiosity. He's not giving us these prophecies so that we might have this exact map in our head of all the things that were going to happen. If God wanted to give us Jesus's Wednesday itinerary, you know, 150 years before Jesus was born, he could have done that, but he chose not to do that. Prophecy in the Old Testament is given to us almost always with a primarily ethical purpose in mind. When God gives us uh, something that's going to happen in the future, he's interested in us reacting to it. In fact, I think a, a solid definition of prophecy is God telling us what's going to happen in advance of it happening with sufficient information for us to respond accordingly. God telling us what's going to happen in advance with sufficient information for us to respond accordingly. Which means if you're reading Old Testament prophecy and your first go-to thing is trying to create a perfect sequential chronology and map out, you probably missed the point. You probably missed the point. We should be approaching Old Testament prophecy asking ourselves, what is it that God wants the people hearing this message to respond with? Is it repentance? Is it faith? Is it hope? Is it expectation? What is it that he's calling them to? And that's also another good sort of reminder is every time you see prophecy given in the Old Testament, it is, I can't think of a single example where it's divorced from the content that came before. And we'll see that in Jeremiah, that the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah, which is a new thing, uh, a new, new development so far in the Old Testament story, is completely bound up and linked with the prosecution of Israel. All the themes and content that Jeremiah has been railing against, I said Israel, Judah, against so far in the book, the New Testament is framed as the solution to that problem. We're not meant to look at it and go, oh, I get it. Exactly, you know, 800 years from now, Jesus is going to get born. No, we're meant to look at it and go, the problem is me, and God is providing the solution, and I should be waiting and trusting in him. I should be repenting, etc. So prophecy is, it, it can be very frustrating, but if we look at it with that ethical intent in mind, it's, it becomes much, much, much easier, I think, to sort of understand it. Questions so far? Does that make sense? I know I'm going fast, but... Got a lot of a lot of content. Comments? Anybody want to argue with me? Patty. <laughs> I just want to say that's wonderfully freeing. As we read, you know you're thinking you need to figure it out. And it's wonderfully freeing to say, no, I can just take take away what the message is for me today and praise God that he's sovereign over it all and has a plan and is loving and faithful, et cetera, et cetera. So I appreciate that very much, Jason, how you articulated that. Amen. Amen. I wasn't arguing with me, Patty, but that's okay. Um, anyone else? Randy. Yeah, I'm kind of struggling with what you said about responding accordingly. And I'm thinking, well, just what time frame do you respond accordingly, or how is that response, or is it the same from when it was written to today for us? And uh, she throws another thought. Oh, gosh. But yeah, you're covering a lot. You're going fast. It kind of hurts. <laughs> It's a, it's a fair point. So yeah, as we're, as we're looking at these Old Testament prophecies, to, to, to the point I think you're making, you know, sometimes there, there might be, it's already fulfilled. You know, it's like already done and, 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 and it's accomplished. Um, and so what do we take away from it? Well, you know, in part, you can take away implications. God is faithful to his promise, um, you know, those sorts of things. Um, at the same point in time, um, we, we often can and ought to see ourselves in the place of the people who God is talking to, not necessarily in terms of a explicit fulfillment, but if, like, we'll get to this when we get to uh, the New Covenant promise, the sins that Jeremiah is accusing the people of Judah of are the sins that are not unique to, to Judah. They apply to all human beings. Um, and to some extent, you know, Judah is doing particularly bad, but they're still applicable to all of us. And the problem that Jeremiah is going to hammer home in this book is the issue is you. The issue is your heart. The issue is the fact that you long to do things that are anti-God and your heart runs from God. We can see ourselves in that. And so in the same way, the promised solution, the new covenant, we can see that solution as necessary for us as well. Um, so obviously on this side of the cross, it's a very, very, very different sort of uh, type of fulfillment. We understand a lot more detail than they did, but we can still understand me, my heart is the problem, the new covenant in Christ is the solution. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's better. And the other part, uh, was that an example of that 
passing time where God told uh, Abram that I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars or the sands of the seashore. So that was all compressed. There was no definitive date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point, good point. Um, okay, we're moving on. Uh, let's look at the other two. Um, this next one, uh, problematic chronology. So uh, Jeremiah is not written chronolo chronologically. It's not written in sequential order. Uh, one commentator said it's more like a scrapbook than a book book. Um, this guy had a hard life. There are exactly two people in the book, Baruch being one of them, who actually listens to him. Um, he spends most of his time condemning Israel or Judah. He... Um, gets into numerous fights with false prophets. He is imprisoned several times, almost killed multiple times. Uh, at the very end of his life, he is forcibly kidnapped. Um, he did not have a good ministry in the you know, traditional sense of what we would you know, consider a good ministry. Um, and this book reflects that life. This book reflects that life. And I think an analogy for it, if it's helpful, uh, is, is imagine you went to your you know, your, your, your grandpa, great-grandpa, whatever, you know, like the attic at their house. And, you know, your, your, your grandma had just passed away, great-grandma just passed away, and you, you see this collection of letters from when your grandpa, great-grandpa was wooing your, uh, your grandma or great-grandma. And it's, it's just the letters themselves. There's, there's no envelopes. He didn't bother to date them. They're just the letters. And so you start reading through them, and there's clearly some sense of chronology, you know. Talks about their first date, then their second date, and then it jumps to like the, their engagement. And then the fourth letter is like back when they're you know, dating again. And then the fifth letter is just you know, his feelings for her. And you have no idea this is before the wedding, after the wedding, third date, when it is. That's kind of what Jeremiah is like. It kind of bounces around that way. And you're not entirely sure, we're not entirely sure, whether or not there is intent behind the way those letters are ordered. You know, it's, it's the way grandma uh, uh, liked them. We're not entirely sure whether or not like Grandma had a stack of letters, and then she found three more in her nightstand and kind of just slipped them in. I mean, so, so there can be some sense of structure. I'm going to try to make some sense of structure uh, of the book itself. But at the same point in time, it's quite possible that this is the collection of, of Jeremiah's writings as compiled by Baruch, um, that, um, and it's, it's sort of the order that it's in. Um, and so it is a very difficult book to understand because it, it lacks anything that is a clear overarching sort of like narrative structure and the fact that it's written non-chronologically. Um, the last one there, uh, I deliberately, I'm not trying to be pretentious. Palaver is, 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 is not a word that I knew. Um, it is, uh, I was trying to be alliterative, uh, but I was also trying to illustrate the fact that that form controls content sometimes. And so um, going back to that poetry point, you know, I picked P's and the first three P's were really easy. And that fourth one, I had to look the word up. Um, and so it really, all that means is wordiness. Um, you, you, Jeremiah uh, tends to repeat himself. In fact, I was listening to the book on Dwell. Um, if, you're, if you're on Dwell, ESV, Gregory, great. Um, but I was listening to it, and several times I thought my phone had skipped because, because it was like the same content over and over again from like two days ago. And it's, it's because there are significant chunks that do tend to repeat throughout the book, and that can make it also more difficult to understand. So we've got the basics of poetry and prophecy. We have this problematic chronology, and we have repetition. These are some of the difficulties in understanding the book of Jeremiah. So with that said, let's transition into understanding the book of Jeremiah as best we can. Um, and please, I don't want anyone to get the impression as I go through this that like this book is some impossibly dense thing to make sense of. You can still read it very, very profitably, um, but we just have to read it understanding that like there are portions where we may not know exactly how it fits together, exactly when it happened, but you can still read that, that, those sections and understand what God is saying to his people. Um, okay, so in terms of structure, I did put something there in your notes. Um, Jeremiah 1 is the call of the prophet, and it really sets the table. Um, there, especially in verse uh, 10, uh, there's a prophetic call to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overflow, I'm sorry, overthrow, build, and to plant. And, and those words seem to be you know, pretty indicative of, of Jeremiah's ministry. That's, that's what he's going to be doing. You'll notice that four of those words are about tearing down and two are about building up. It's about the ratio in the book, too. Um, and then chapters 2 to 25, these are all largely poetic sections. This is that 
plucking up, breaking down, destroying, overthrowing. This is all of the condemnatory uh, uh, accusations from God to his people Judah about their sins. When you get to 26 to 29, this is a a largely narrative section, and it begins to sort of talk about some of the struggles that Jeremiah has encountered and is going through. So it's a little bit about the prophet and his life and a little bit of the history. 30 to 31, it's often called the Book of Consolation. So this is the, uh, the happy part of Jeremiah. This is God giving his people hope, the things that he is going to do to fix the problem that is them. Um, and then 34 to 35 is another narrative section, and it really sort of talks about the judgment that was promised. So in 2 to 25, God is condemning Israel or Judah, and I'm going to say Israel a bunch, I'm sorry. He's condemning Judah and, and, and promises destruction if they don't repent, well, they don't repent. And so 34 to 35 kind of covers more about Jeremiah and the execution of that judgment. We see the narrative text describing it. Um, and then there's some, some aftermath that we see as well. It's like a postscript. And then in 46 to 52, um, Jeremiah offers prophecies not just about Judah, but about the surrounding nations as well. One of the hallmarks of him as a prophet is that he is described as a prophet to the nations. And so the book ends with prophecies uh, about and against the, the surrounding nations of, of God's people as well. So that's the structure of the book. If you keep that in mind, you can generally, I think, know where you're at and, and read the book profitably. Um, someone could, you know, do a slightly different uh, a chapter breakdown or different, different titles, but I think it gives you a sense for how the book is ultimately constructed. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Okay. So now we're going to do a little bit of a history lesson, and there are two reasons why I want to do this. First and foremost, because as it relates to the book of Jeremiah, if you understand what's kind of going on uh, historically at the time, when you read it and you come across Jehoiakim versus Jehoiakim, you'll understand who those guys are. That's not a typo, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and And so it'll be more profitable as you read the book. But also, Jeremiah's life and ministry covers a really significant time in the prophetic books. And so if you understand what's happening here in this timeline, it's a window into most of the other prophetic books in the Old Testament as well. So this history is going to be useful for Jeremiah, but also, I think, for the rest of the series, too. So bear with me. Um, I have this in written form. So if, if you don't get it all down, happy to give it to you. I'll literally give you my notes afterwards. I'll email it to you, whatever you want, if you want it. Um, but here's, here's kind of what's going on, and here's, here's the sequence of events. Again, this is context and chronology. I'm not going to talk about the why. I'm going to talk about it just like you would in a history class. Jeremiah tells us the why. Jason's telling you the what, if that makes sense. So remember, the, 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 the overall context is, is Israel's come out of Egypt. They're in the promised land. 400 years goes by, and you get to King Solomon. Uh, this is the height, the zenith of, of, of the people of God and their, their time in the land in terms of power and expansion and, and, and comfort. And then Solomon, at the end of his life, sins, and God promises the kingdom is going to split. So you get two. You get northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. The northern kings are, I think it's a, a servant of Solomon, if memory, if memory serves, and it's, it's kind of their line. And then the southern kingdom is the line of David, David's descendants. So the northern kingdom kind of goes from bad to worse. And at some point in time, a century or two before our events here, they are wiped off the face of the the earth by the big bad boogeyman empire of the day, Assyria. Assyria is the big bad guy historically for for a big portion of of Israel's history in terms of the the geographic region. Um, Judah fares better, but not much better. Um, And right before the story begins in Jeremiah, there have been two really bad kings, especially a guy by the name of Manasseh. Um, This is King Josiah's grandfather. You can read about him in 2 Chronicles 33. The the, the guy was bad. Let's just say that. He was really, really bad. And his leadership of Judah was such that God promised massive destruction because of their sins. So destruction of Judah is sort of looming in the background already. Um, again, Assyria is this 300-year uh, world power. Um, um, they've already broken Israel. Judah has, has, has not fared super better against them, but at least they're their own kingdom still. And uh, Josiah becomes king at the ripe old age of eight years old, which I believe is Talia Duran. Is that? Is that? Is that? She, she's not in here, but that, that's, that's, yeah. 
So imagine, imagine Talia Duran as, as president of the United States, and you kind of get a sense for like what we're looking at in, in Judah. However, however, um, um, Josiah ends up being a really good seed. He, he does love and follow the Lord, so he institutes reforms. And um, because he does this, because uh, Judah is turning around some, God promises that so long as Josiah is alive, the wrath will be averted. It'll still come, but the wrath will be averted so long as Josiah is alive. So Josiah ends up staying, uh, he, ends up, he ends up dying in about 610, 609 uh, BC, and Jeremiah is called as a prophet uh, in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. So middle of Josiah's reign, Jeremiah is called as a prophet. Um, there are uh, other prophets that are uh, around in the same time frame, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, these guys are all around. Um, but something big happens in 612 BC. In 612 BC, Assyria finally gets overtaken. So Assyria is to the north. They're kind of like, think of like Iraq and Syria. Um, and Iran, using modern day terms, is the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon and Assyria have hated each other for a long time. Babylon comes in and begins to attack Assyria. Um, they sack the capital city of Nineveh in 612. And for so the next three years, ultimately, um, beating down Assyria and taking it over. So Babylon becomes the new big bad boogeyman uh, right as Josiah dies. Um, Egypt was a big power player in the area, and they were uh, uh, allies with Assyria. In fact, Josiah ends up dying fighting Egypt to stop them from helping Assyria. Um, but uh, because Egypt is a power player and because it really benefits them to have a country between them and Babylon, they decide that they don't like the, the next king of Israel, and so they stage a coup, and they replace him with, uh, with a guy by the name of Jehoiakim, K-I-M. Um, now, so Je Jehoiakim is sort of like an Egyptian plant. He's still, a, he's still you know, a Judean, but he's loyal to Egypt, and that, that, that works for a little while until eventually Babylon comes south, and... Um, <laughs> Like Babylon coming south and, 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 and Jehoiakim standing between them and Egypt is kind of like someone trying to rob me and me putting one of my children in front of me. Like it, it might do some good, but it's not going to really do a whole lot, right? So uh, Jehoiakim, faced with um, you know, death or submission, submits to Babylon. Um, and that actually leads to a deportation of uh, some of the Judean uh, folks. Daniel is one of those that gets deported into Babylon at this time. Um, but uh, Jehoiakim is still loyal to Egypt, and so he decides that he is going to sort of work behind the scenes, do some rebellion, and um, that, uh, that uh, does not make uh, Babylon happy. Uh, now, Jehoiakim is not a good guy. He is described as greedy, dishonest, a murderer, prideful. Um, so this, this whole rebellion thing is uh, not a good idea. Um, and it does absolutely irritate Babylon. Um, but fortunately for him, he dies about three months before they show up. So they, they launch an army, he dies, and Jehoiakim, C-H-I-M, becomes king. And the guy lasts for about three months before Nebuchadnezzar shows up and says, hey, your names are too similar, I'm killing you. Um, and so I'm joking, obviously. But he does lay siege to Jerusalem. He takes more captives. Ezekiel is one of those captives. Um, and then Babylon departs. Now, at this point in time in the story, Israel has absolutely learned it. No, they haven't. They haven't. They rebel again against Babylon. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar shows up and he eradicates Judah. He uh, sets fire to Jerusalem, a significant fire, burning all the, the nice places of the city. He demolishes the temple. Um, and uh, Judah is no longer its own kingdom at this point. They are now a governorship, a province of Babylon. And a man named Zedekiah is installed as uh, governor. Of course, he learns his lesson. No, he rebels as well. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Zedekiah is installed after Jehoiakim. So he's the one who rebels um, after that second deportation. I messed that up. So it's, it's Jehoiakim um, who does the rebellion. Jehoiakim comes in. Babylon sacks the city, installs Zedekiah, and then Zedekiah rebels, and that's when uh, Babylon comes and, and, and salts the earth, essentially. So now they have a governor, a governor who is a Judean, who's now ruling over, um, and some men of Judah kill the governor. They realize that since Babylon has a tendency of not liking rebellion, uh, they decide to flee to Egypt contrary to God's uh, command, and they actually kidnap Jeremiah and Baruch and take them with them, and uh, Jeremiah spends the rest of his days in Egypt. And that's, 
essentially the history and the chronology of what happened, my, my flub notwithstanding. Um, does that make sense? Any, any clarifying questions on that? Oh, good. Okay, excellent. What was governor? The, <laughs> did I write it down? Uh, governor so-and-so. I didn't actually write it down. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, again, uh, apologies for belaboring that, but I think it's, it's really useful just in general for the book, but also for the rest of the series. So let's turn our attention quickly to Jeremiah and the themes. Um, and this is where we'll start actually opening the book up. Uh, so Jeremiah, um, the themes of the book. So uh, if, if I could get a volunteer to read uh, a passage, um, it's going to be Jeremiah 1, 14 to 16. Volunteer for that, Jeremiah 1, 14 to 16. Thank you, Matt. Um, I'm going to read 1, 5 in a second. But as we, before we get to those, those references, just Again, the idea here is that Judah, like all of God's people at this point, they are under the Mosaic Covenant. Hallmarks for that covenant is, is obedience results in blessing, disobedience results in curses. Um, and what Jeremiah is going to be doing here is prosecuting his people. He is going to be calling them to account for their failures to obey the Mosaic Covenant. He's going to iter, uh, describe to them the judgments that they uh, are likely to be suspect, subject to if they continue in their path. He's going to offer them repentance and then ultimately pronounce judgment on them when they don't repent. So that's his, that's his fundamental job. Um, and the verses that we're going to look at are sort of his calling. So Jeremiah 1, 5, um, we have this larger picture of Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And that's repeated in, in verse 10. So Jeremiah has this bigger mission. It's not just focused on Judah, but the meat of, of what he is called to do is expressed in 1, 14 to 16. And if you can read that, Matt. And the Lord said to me, out of the north disaster, out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the earth, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them, for all their evil is forsaken me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. So you see, you see um, <clears throat> Jeremiah being being called here in the context of his ministry. Um, to pronounce woe to, to, to Judah for their evils, as described in verse 16, specifically um, that there's going to be this northern kingdom who's going to come in, northern kingdoms, represented by a, you know, multiple kingdoms under the banner of Babylon, who's going to come wipe them off the face of the earth. So there is a special focus on Judah and Jeremiah's ministry. One quick side note as you're reading the book, I've, I've said Israel like a half dozen times already. Sometimes in the book, the word Israel is used to describe the people of God as a whole. Sometimes it's used to describe the specific northern uh, kingdom. Um, and uh, especially in like the historic sections, you'll see Israel used in that more global sense. So uh, just, just note that as, you, uh, as you're reading the book. It can get confusing sometimes. But again, Jeremiah's job is to condemn Judah. That's his call. He gets right to it. Going back to our outline, chapters 2 to 25 is, is really him doing exactly that. Um, and uh, the, the wrath that was promised in the text that math uh, Matt read is is really significant. This is the scorched earth approach, and if you don't believe that, read Lamentations. It makes it really clear that this was a horrible, horrible event in the life of God's people. This was a severe disciplining. Um, unfortunately, Judah does not listen to these warnings, and so Jeremiah's sort of uh, prosecutorial function um, follows other prosecutorial functions in the prophets' statement of guilt offer of repentance, the people's response, and then ultimately the pronouncement of final judgment. As you're reading through those, those 24 chapters or so, um, you'll see that sort of sequence happen. Um, again, out of, out of order, but you'll see the sequence happen, and you'll even see God make a, a statement that even if Moses were here praying for the people, whether you pray for them, they pray, they've sealed their fate, judgment is coming. And so Jeremiah is prosecuting God's people for their violations of his covenant. And in a sense, 
it's worth noting that we have kind of come full circle, right? So Israel coming out of Egypt in the land, and Josiah or Joshua, sorry, um, they 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 have occupied the land. They have they have they have the, the 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 Mosaic covenant and the possibility of endless promise before them. And now, fast forward, you know, roughly 500 years, and we see the wiping away of God's people from the land in its entirety. So we, the, the Old Testament narrative has kind of come full circle. And that was the point of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is to show us our need for Christ. And so Israel is sort of divine theater writ large uh, for all of the world to see that we are inherently sinful. We are inherently rebellious. And we deserve God's wrath. They are a picture of that, that the whole world can look at and see, and that we can look at and see, and see the need for something greater in the future. And that's the primary thing that Jeremiah is doing. If you understand that, you understand his ministry, and you understand kind of what the book is intended to do. Does that make sense? Questions, comments, concerns on any of that? <laughs> okay, Israel is a picture of my rebellion, essentially. Yeah, it, what you're saying. Yeah, the, the 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 law shows us our need for Christ, and and Israel is a picture of that. So you see a people who are especially called out by God in the world, who are given every opportunity to understand Him, to to obey Him, uh, who are given special favor, and and they reject Him at every turn, they disobey Him at every turn. And that's not showing us that this particular group of people is especially bad. It's showing us the reality of the human heart. And so Israel is a picture of what goes on in every single human being, namely that there is something deep down rooted in us that is evil and rejects God and needs to be changed. So I can't think I'm It would probably be, probably <laughs> might be a misapplication. Yes, yes, I think that's fair. Tim. Two quick things. One is just to close the loop on something I said earlier. It is not Talia, but Gedalia is the, <laughs> the governor who's assassinated in Jeremiah 41. Thank you. So, and then the other thing is just a note about, I think we read in that, that read from chapter one about something coming from the north. And that, you know, that doesn't mean like present day Russia or something, <laughs> but that these, these empires from the east would approach from the north because they're following the Fertile Crescent. They're not cutting through the Arabian Desert. So you look at the map and you see Assyria, Babylon, and the East, you go, why are these prophecies up the north? Because that's the direction they're, they're coming from. They're looping over the Fertile Crescent. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think also, too, while they may have like an eastern, especially Babylon has a, a pretty far eastern you know, Iranian, if you're looking at map now, where Iran is, um, headquarters, They've taken over all the nations to the west as well, including those to the north of Israel. And so in the passage, Matt read, it was multiple kingdoms. Well, it's, it's an empire comprised of multiple former kingdoms that are coming against Israel as well. Other questions, comments on that? Okay. Uh, let's get into um, the, the nature of the accusation. So this is, uh, gosh, we're on B two, uh, 4B, the adulter adulterous evil of idolatry. Um, the adulterous evil of idolatry. So this particular one, and for the sake of time, I am going to, we're going to go through it relatively quickly. But what I wanted to highlight here is this is the primary theme under which the uh, accusations of Israel are framed. And it's really important to highlight because this is also the framework in which the new covenant is promised. It's a solution to this idol, uh, I, I, adulterous idolatry. I'm going to mess that up a half dozen times. It's a solution to the I, uh, adulterous idolatry of Israel, and it's framed that way. So um, and, and going back to Patty's point, you know, when we read these books and we kind of see this and we see this tendency of ours to sort of do anything that's, you know, God is right here. We want to kind of just go to the left or to the right. And um, we, should, we should really see this as uh, indicative of human nature and not indicative of uh, this particular generation of Judah being especially bad. This is a human problem, not a particular group in point of time problem. If you can read Jeremiah without being convicted, you are either Jesus or something is wrong. Like, you should be able to see yourself in this text somewhere. Um, but let's, uh, Jeremiah 2, 9 to 13, can I get a volunteer to read that one pretty please? Jeremiah 2, 9 to 13.
Thank you. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will still I will contend. For cross to the coast of sorry, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken his cisterns that can hold no water. Thank you. So this is the, the summary condemnation statement for the people's evil. This is the heart of the issue. They've rejected God and they've turned to other gods. And part of the point that, that God is making in that section through Jeremiah is that this is unheard of. People tend throughout human history maybe to add gods to their pantheons, like the Romans and the Greeks were great at this. They add gods to the pantheon, but no one wholesale rejects the gods that they you know grew up with, their nation's gods. That's exactly what Israel is doing. They are rejecting God and they are following after others. And, and God rightly points out this is shocking and stupid and evil. But that's the summary statement. But in the context of Jeremiah, this evil is framed over and over and over again in the context of adultery. And the language does actually get fairly implicitly graphic uh, from time to time in the book. Um, one, one statement uh, is, uh, is uh, Jeremiah 3, verses 6 to 11, which I'll read really fast. Jeremiah 3, 6 to 11. And it says, I apologize, this is actually the, the, the New American Standard uh, for those with the ESV. I should have brought a different one up here. But it says, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faith, faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all of these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and gave her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she went out and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her holler tree, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of this, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception." So you see the, the framing of idolatry in the context of adultery. You also notice that Israel did it. Northern Kingdom did it. They were wiped off the face of the earth. And rather than learn from that, Judah went ahead and did worse. They did worse. Okay, uh, Jeremiah 2, 20 to 24. Can I get a volunteer to read that one as well? Jeremiah 2, 20 to 24. Christy, thank you. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you, you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned, denigrated, and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the the balls, bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used the wilderness to her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her mouth they will find her. In her mouth they will find her. So the point there is that, uh, thank you, Christy, is, is that th- this idolatry is clearly adulterous, but just, just, just hope we heard the language, right? This is not an isolated incident. This is not an accidental dalliance to borrow language from the Holy Spirit here. This is not a one-night stand. This is wanton, repeated, enthusiastic adultery. Um, and and this, is, this is evil. This is horrible. Of course, every least sin deserves eternal wrath. Um, but it's, it's worth noting that you know, Ju- Judah's sins are made so much worse, not only because of the example of what happened in the northern kingdom, but because of this precious place of relationship that it should and to a certain extent does enjoy with God. Um, this is a little different than the Philistines worshiping the fish god Dagon. Um, this, is, this is Israel who, who knows better, who is actively and explicitly rejecting him and going after other gods. 
Um, but not only did they treat the relationship with God with contempt, they rejected every opportunity to be restored to him. Also in chapter 2, verses 29 to 30, um, let me read that really fast. Chapter 2, verses 29 to 30, uh, it says, Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your sons. They accepted no chastening. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. So God has, God has not let this go on without rebuke, without attempt to turn their hearts. He has disciplined them as if to say, you're doing wrong, turn back to me. And they have rejected it and they have done worse. And not, not only that, not only are they, are, they, they, are they acting the harlot, not only are they refusing to be reconciled to God, but there are several passages in Jeremiah where it becomes clear that they absolutely are trying to have their cake and eat it too. Let me read these for the sake of time. It's uh, Jeremiah 3, verses 4 and 5. God says, Have you not just now called to me? My father, you were the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. This is kind of like the, uh, you know, the, the spouse who, who, who gets in trouble and, and the, other, the, the other spouse comes in and, and is calling to, you know, to, to account for it. And they're like, really? I mean, come on. We've had, we've had 20 years together. What's one little indiscretion, right? I mean, come on. We have this relationship. Overlook it. Overlook it. That's what Israel is doing or Judah is doing. In uh, Jeremiah 7, 8 to 11, there's another attempt at this. Um, God says, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So in this particular picture, Israel is, is, is or Judah is, is attacked, God's disciplining hands against them, and so they run to the temple. Surely God is not going to let his temple, the, the, the place where he calls home, the place where his, his name is known, be destroyed. We're saved. You know, we have this thing that's going to protect us, and we can go on doing the things we want to do. Israel is living in the state of practical divorce. It's, it's like, using an analogy, it's, it's like a, a woman who is married to a man with an ironclad prenup. I mean, to the point where if she were to get divorced, she would actually walk away from that marriage with less than she has. She's not going to completely divorce them. She's not going to, you know, uh, completely reject them entirely. There's still going to be some semblance of a relationship, but she's living her life as if he doesn't exist. She's doing whatever she wants. And in the same way, Israel is doing that with God, and it leads to all sorts of other sins. In 6, uh, six through 7, we, talk, we see oppression, violence, and destruction is accused of them. In 13 and 14 of chapter 6, it's dishonest gain and false dealings. But the worst is Jeremiah 7, 30, and 31. Jeremiah 7, 30, and 31. I think, you know, I hope everyone agrees with me this is the worst. But there it says, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. So they're not just living lives of wanton sin. They're not just engaging in, in idolatry. They're, they're murdering their kids uh, in the service of other gods, which is completely foreign to our God. So this is essentially the, the nature of the accusation. The people of, of God, Judah, mankind in general, plays the harlot. We reject God and we chase after things that are not him to our own destruction as we relatedly engage in all sorts of detestable behaviors that themselves are worth an eternity of wrath over. And that is Jeremiah's message to the people. Questions, comments? Christina. Whenever I hear these passages about people sacrificing their children, I, I think about abortion in our day and age, and I wonder, is that an appropriate... 
I, I, don't, I don't see how it's not, honestly. Um, I mean, it's, it's not to Topheth or Baal or, or insert other Canaanite god, um, but it's still at the altar of convenience and preference. Um, it's still, yeah, I, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different flavor of ice cream, but it's still ice cream. No, no, apologies to the ice cream lovers out there. Um, other questions or comments? Okay, let's get on to the good news portion of this, which is the, the herald of the new covenant. So this is, in, if you pick a book in the Old Testament, insofar as in that book God talks about what's going to happen in the future, uh, there is some reference to what Jesus is, is ultimately going to do. It could be, you know, a very, very vague, uh, like the, the promise that Abraham's descendants are going to be uh, as numerous as the seashore and that uh, in Abraham all the nations are going to be blessed. Other times it gets more explicit. So, you know, for example, we see um, uh, the fact that the Messiah is going to be, you know, the king uh, of the earth through the Davidic pro- uh, covenant. But Jeremiah's contribution is the explicit reference to a new covenant with Israel. I think in all of the prophetic books, this is chronologically the first explicit reference. Um, you know, Ezekiel might might be might be up there as well, but I think this is this is the first. Um, and so, if you're again kind of tracking content, um, thirty to thirty-one are, are probably the the main passages that uh, would be worth looking at if you wanted to read them on your own, but. Chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, are the key passages related to the new covenant. And so can I ask for a volunteer to read chapter 31, verses 31 to 34? Hmm. Patty, thank you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Excellent. Thank you. So we could spend an entire class just on, on this alone, but what I want to highlight is there, there are three, three things to call out of this, this particular passage, um, kind of going back to what I said about prophecy being related to the uh, things that came before. So I've been emphasizing the prosecution of Judah. I've been emphasizing this sort of anti-relationship that Judah has. Notice all of the relational elements of the new covenant in this passage. The two things that are hallmarks here, the law will be written on their hearts and everyone shall know the Lord. These are the chief issues, are they not, that issue uh, that Judah and, and Israel to a large extent were guilty of. They, they, they did not follow after God's law and they did not know him not in any meaningful saving way. So the new covenant here is a solution to the problem that God has been painting through Jeremiah. Uh, The new covenant is a solution. It's not an opportunity. It's an entirely different character than the Mosaic covenant. Now, the ultimate reason that, um, that the God's people have failed so spectacularly is that they are still under Adam. That's also sort of at the, the heart of what's happening here. It's kind of the point I made earlier. The issue is us. The issue is who we are. We need to be different than who we are. And you'll notice in the New Covenant here, everyone, for everyone, the law will be written on their hearts, and everyone shall know the Lord. Those who are under the Mosaic Covenant are there by birth. Those who are there under the new covenant are there by new birth. The new covenant is the ultimate solution to that problem, again, that's being painted, namely you and me and our fallen sinful hearts. Only those who are in Christ are in the new covenant. That's why, that's why no one needs to teach their neighbor because the condition of being in the covenant is to be regenerated in the first place. 
Um, and then finally, again, notice these repeated references to relationship. Uh, Israel broke the Mosaic Covenant. It says, even though I was like a husband to them. So this is an immediate callback to everything that had just been said about the, you know, Israel's idolatry and sin in the context of adultery. Um, and, and, and notice that, again, everyone will know the Lord. That is a relational term. God's blessing here in the New Covenant is not merely the forgiving of sins. God is not portraying himself as a judge who is merely letting the bad guy go or, or, or fixing a, a, a judicial problem. Uh, he's not a genie granting our wishes. He's a father, a husband, a brother. And the solution to our wrong, sinful, rebellious hearts is a change of that heart that results in the relationship that we were supposed to have in the first place, the relationship they were supposed to have in the first place. So this new covenant solution should never, ever, ever be, uh, 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 you know, something that we sort of like uh, divorce from this context. The new covenant is the solution to the problem that Jeremiah has been painting. And I said that four times. I'll say it a fifth time. The new covenant is the solution to the problem that Jeremiah has been painting. It's what we should be taking away from this book. I'm the problem. I need Christ. Questions on that? Yes. Yeah, you know it's funny the the the, the reference to um, um, Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations sort of hints at a more global application of what's happening here as well. Um, but clearly in the New Testament, um, we, we see it's applicable to Gentiles. So the intent of God's promise is there. Um, whether that's immediately understood from these words at this point in time, probably not. Um, I can't imagine anybody taking that away, honestly. Um, but. But yes, it's clearly the intention. Other questions? That was a good one. Oh my goodness, we'll get to do Lamentations. Okay. Um, I am going to go through it quickly. Uh, it is a relatively straightforward book, but let's change gears to Lamentations. Um, Lamentations is a, uh, uh, it's a, it's, it's, it's a poem that I, I called earlier an exemplar of a tradition of lament poems. So after Judah goes into exile, there was sort of a cottage industry of these uh, poems, uh, songs that kind of sprang up that recalled the destruction of Jerusalem um, and uh, specifically kind of have this like hope-filled, repentant, uh, tinge to them, but were often, you know, characterized by like horror and sadness over what happened. So, um, this 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 poem is is a, an, an incredible example of one of those. Um, and um, this tradition of Jerusalem laments, you can actually kind of view it as the anti Psalms, if that helps, because oftentimes in the Psalms, in an example of Psalm forty eight. Where, where Jerusalem is exalted as the city of God or the joy of all the earth, well, Lamentations—it's been brought low, it's been—it's been destroyed. It's—it's it's the opposite of what it once was, and so it's sort of the—you know—it's meant to be. I say opposite of the Psalms. It's not like it's anti-Psalms. It's just more—it it contrasts what what Jerusalem was or could have been with what it is at the time of the exile. There are five poems in here. Um, these are all acrostics. So each of the, the first words of each poem is, the, is, a, is a consonant, a different consonant in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, they don't follow the alphabet perfectly, um, but they do it that way. Um, and then poem three is a trifold acrostic. So there's 22 consonants, so poems one, two, uh, four, and five. Pause on five second. Um, um, all, all have 22 verses. Poem three has 66 verses. Um, and then um, poem five is technically not an acrostic, um, but it keeps that same 22-verse structure. So this is a highly organized set of poems. Um, and there might actually be some, some, some theological content behind that. You know, Israel is disorganized. They're in chaos. They're in, they're in defeat. They're, they're out of the homeland. And, and, and this is a highly controlled, compact uh, a format here, you know, might hint uh, of the idea that God is still in control, even, you know, even as the content um, um, indicates, you know, sorrow and sadness. But those are, that's how it's structured. Um, and then there's, each of these poems also has a literary theme. So the first two poems include the personification of Jerusalem as a woman. Um, this, the third poem uh, has two images, one of a man who's been broken by his enemies 
and then an afflicted community under judgment. The fourth poem is more of an eyewitness to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the fifth one is a, a, a lament poem, a more just I'm, I'm sorry and sad this happened type poem. So in terms of the structure you see in the notes, you could just view it as five different poems, or because number one and number two kind of have a similar use of imagery, you could lump those together as a, as a single unit either way. Uh, in terms of the theology and themes and lamentations, I put three there, I believe, in your notes. Yeah, um, we have uh, repentant hope, the horror of divine judgment, and a poignant remembrance. These first two really draw more on the explicit content of the book. Um, so Lamentations 118, the Lord is righteous, I have rebelled against his command. Lamentations 120, see, O Lord, for I am in distress, my spirit is greatly troubled, my heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. So there are statements clearly of, I deserve this. And again, the I here is actually the personification of the city of Jerusalem. But we, our people, what happened to me, we deserve it. Um, but there are also multiple statements of hope peppered throughout these poems, kind of sticking with Lamentations 1, uh, verse 21 and 22. Um, they have heard that I groan. There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my calamity. They are glad that you have done it. Oh, that you would bring the day which you have proclaimed, that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have done with me for my transgressions. For my groans are many, my heart is faint." Um, in Lamentations 3, we get the super, super famous, um, it's, this is, uh, verses 19 to 33 is a, is, a, is a big chunk, but 21 to 23, uh, we get, um, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so we, we see clear statements of hope peppered throughout uh, this book, um, including a rather commonly used statement of hope in, uh, in Lamentations chapter 3. But, you know, if you read 19 to 33, you see a ton of hope in that section there. So there is, there is clearly a picture throughout the chapter, uh, throughout the poems, of someone who is recognizing that they deserved what happened, and yet they are hopeful and waiting on the Lord to restore them, fix them, address the issue. That said, while there is a repentant, hope-filled theme most of the book is uh, characterized by the horror of divine judgment. Much of, the, the, of this book is statements about what God has done to them. Um, and, and the intention is, I think, to, to, to clearly, clearly describe to anyone who's, who's listening, who's singing these as a song, that God is holy, wrath is real, sin will be punished. And, uh, you know, for us on this side of the cross, you know, as we read this, you know, it's, 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 we, we can see the smoldering ashes of Jerusalem and remind us of the far greater judgment that's going to come ultimately. This is just a picture in time of the ultimate judgment that's going to happen when our Lord Jesus returns. Uh, finally, poignant remembrance. Um, so this is, this is more about the purpose of the book uh, than the explicit content, but Again, these laments were given uh, as, a, as a tradition to be read and sung uh, by the exiles in their time in Babylon. And so there is an inherent function of these that are meant to remind the people as to why they are there. They are to remind the people that they're in exile, not because the gods of Nebuchadnezzar were better than, than Yahweh, not because the people simply made stupid, non-strategic political alliances. They're there because a sovereign God put them there in response to their failures to obey the Mosaic Covenant. Lamentations is primarily educational in that sense, and it's a reminder of why they are where they are, what they ought to be, why it happened, etc. Um, so to the extent that they, they sing of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the intent is that they should be prodded to continue repentance and to remembrance that they must be faithful to God even as they await God's promised restoration. Make sense? Questions, comments, concerns on any of that? Okay. All right. Um, lastly, I'm going to rattle these off. Um, I, I wrote them in a way that was meant to be self-explanatory. But as we as we go through the book of, of Jeremiah and Lamentations, um, we've covered some of these. Number one, we should we should see Judah as a picture of humanity's need in general for Christ. 
um, and more specifically, we should see in ourselves the, the need uh, for Christ and repent accordingly. Um, would be good material to go through in the context of a you know, Bible study or, or great content to pull from from an evangelistic perspective as well. Um, and of course, for those of us on this side of the cross and you know, in the new covenant, um, you know, we, we get to revel in what we have in Christ. We get to revel in the fact that that problem that we, we see here in Jeremiah is fundamentally solved. We get to revel in the fact that we have been forgiven. We get to revel in the fact that we now can have in fullest form, um, well, almost fullest form, fullest form when Jesus comes back, a, a meaningful, fulfilling, experiential relationship with God. And of course, given that, given that we are changed, these books should encourage us to live out what we are in Christ. And this last one, stick to the word of God, didn't have a whole lot of time to develop it. But when you read through Jeremiah in particular, you will see false prophets pop up a lot. In fact, there's even one scene where they are so predominant and they have message to Judah, everything is going to be fine, that when God gives word to Jeremiah that it's not, Jeremiah responds to God and says, and then why do you tell us it's going to be fine? Like, he, even he was buying off on that message. Um, and so the, 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 the reality of the sufficient, inerrant, startling, clear, hard word of God versus the message we want to see uh, is also throughout the book. Um, and it's just an encouragement for us to hew close to what God says and be very weary, leery, cautious of the things that sound good to us that agree with our personal preferences and wants and, and the like. All right, we're done. There's exactly no time left, but any, any last question or comment from anyone before we pray? Awesome, let's pray. Father, thank you for the sobering richness of these books. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would all just read them with uh, greater edification, encouragement, conviction, Pray, Lord, that um, you would continue to use this series in the lives of your people to make the Old Testament more accessible and, and, and fruitful for us, Father. And we pray that you would have us read these things for the glory of your Son in his name.